Sorry for the odd cough. <laughs> Welcome, Eric Kaufman. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you could visit our podcast. Lovely to be here. So you're coming here straight from London? That's where, right. Where we're a professor. That's right. I'm a professor of politics at uh, Birkbeck, which is part of the University of London. Um, and I'm Canadian, which is why I don't sound British. Sorry. <laughs> But it's the same uh, same to us. We, we don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, Uh, so you have just uh, written a new book. Yes. White Shift. That's right. Yeah, it's it's called White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. So, um, yeah, I mean, it really, the book is essentially about uh, two things. I mean, White Shift 1.0, if you like, which is the our lifetime, which we will see the decline of white ethnic majorities uh, and the, how that's changing Western politics, making it more about culture, if you like, and less about economics. Um, and then, then there's the longer-term meaning of white shift, which is that um, white ethnic majorities, in my view, will over time, uh, through melting and assimilation of other groups, become more mixed race or beige, if you like, to use the Michael Lynn's term. And that, that, But that's a hundred years from now. So it, it's, it's only in the long term. And that kind of provides a solution to some of the polarization that we're seeing now. Michael Lynn, he's kind, <laughs> kind of a controversial character, right? Yeah, he. I mean, to some extent, to some extent. I mean, but he's, um, yeah, he's sort of doesn't easily fit the ideological boxes you could say so where where do you put yourself in what ideological box well i think i you know generally on these issues i mean i'd say economically i'm sort of center center left um but on these issues around national identity ethnicity i would generally at least in academia i would find myself right of center on those issues um And and actually, that's that's where a lot of voters kind of are as well. I think are, are somewhat to the left economically and somewhat to the right culturally. Uh, but the parties typically historically have have not catered to that very well. So they had at least in the twentieth century, uh, sorry, in the second half of the twentieth century, the right has been kind of. Uh, to the right economically and and the left has been kind of you know culturally quite liberal so both of these parties the, the mainstream left and the mainstream right have kind of been quite individualist um in terms of the cultural side and the and and to some extent the economic side the economic individualism has won and the cultural individualism has won so what's missing in a way is the more communitarian side both culturally and economically. So it's you and Jonathan Haidt. Right. <laughs> you're, right. <laughs> you're holding the center. And Michael Lind would be another example <laughs> of that, you know. Um, yeah, so people who might say, well, maybe we should shift more to where the center of gravity of public opinion is. Right. And um, Jordan Peterson was invited to Cambridge. As, right. As a guest professor. Yes. But he's not coming. No, <laughs> no. So they've sort of uh, revoked his his invitation to be a, a, a professor there, visiting for two months after sort of student pressure. Did you see the debate? See Czech? Peterson? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I, I re my one experience with Zizek is, who by the way is affiliated to my university, but is, is I was at the LSE and I saw this long line of hip-looking young people. And I thought, what is this, a rock concert? And no, it's Zizek giving a talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, that wouldn't have interested me to go to that. <laughs> so don't uh, 
identify with a hipster movement? Not really. I mean, they're they're fine. They can have a, a right to be hipsters. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> but but the hipsters they really like Cicic. Yeah, I mean, why is this? Be, it's a performance to me. It's it's like a rock star, like a show. So it's art. It's not analysis. In my view, it's it's all about kind of flair and flamboyance and style, and it's not really about systematic social scientific analysis and and falsification and all of these sorts of things <laughs> that we we know about in science, right? And because it tells great stories. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if there's a coherent story there in Zizek. I mean, it's all about chaos and this and that, and and he being provocative and and just you know. So I I I'm not claiming I've read him closely, but it seems to me to lack a consistent hypothesis. <laughs> uh, but it, it talks a lot about how we are narrative beings, right? So how we we kind of uh, accommodate the stories over time. And right. applicate it to how we understand the world. Yes, that's the good story, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's fine. I mean that's not radically new. I mean it's a that's a sort of a cultural theory of human behavior, which is you know people work within that tradition. What I don't like about these sorts of people is they they never are measurable. So there's no way of testing any of these hypotheses. They're just thrown out there, you know, with in a very artistic manner. So you don't know what you're looking at, in a way. Um, and that's Eric, is why we don't <laughs> invite C-Check to this podcast, right. but we invite you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you found about uh, changing demographics and how this turned out in, uh, in how we vote? Well, yeah, so demographics is very much behind this. this these ethnic changes in Western societies is the backdrop um, to the kind of growing unease amongst conservative members of mainly white majorities, although it's also minorities who are conservative uh, who can also be voting for populist right. So it's quite a, a bit trickier than just saying it's ethnic majorities. But essentially it's about people being attached to a way of life or being attached to their group and wanting to defend that. And, and that's you – know, obviously we have to come to an, a middle ground, a compromise between those sorts of positions and people who want open borders or – diversity and change at a high rate. What I have what you find now though is is that conversation is difficult to have because say on the left you'll have people dichotomize the world into open closed if you're a closed person you're against us and you're a xenophobic racist or if you're an open person you've got to be really open. Um and I think is this we need the same distinction as somewheres and anywheres. Yeah, it's close. It's related to that. So that David Goodhart, who's come up with that, and I know David quite well. The, the only, I mean, it's largely the same, but I would distinguish between the the somewheres where people who Goodhart would say these are people who who live within twenty miles of where they're born and they identify with their place. That's me. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, and the anywheres are people like me who live a long way from where they were born and and fly around the world. No, that's not quite true, but. Um, so you're I a think globalist. Uh, globalist, right, yeah. right. So so I think this is much more about psychological makeup and it doesn't matter necessarily if you live within 20 miles of where you're born, you could be and anywhere if by disposition you are you know score high on openness in the big five personality traits, 
you're going to want diversity and change, regardless if you happen to be living close to where you're so born. So don't need to move is what you're saying. Right. And, and Or you could be moving around the world, but actually, hey, you know, you are actually very attached to, uh, and, you know, ethnic group and, and nation and, and, you know, where you're from. So, so I think – I just think the difference between me and Goodhart on this is I think it's more about psychology than place. Um, but yeah, that is the big division and the emerging division in politics is between, uh, you know, the people who are more inclined towards, you know, open, if you like, or diversity change and the people who are more inclined towards maintaining tradition and memory and, and continuity. And so that's, uh, a cultural divide which which cuts across the old economic left right but what drives this divide what drives it is different responses to change and particularly this demographic change um so you have the demographic shift but i thought like psychologically psychologically this is comes from these dispositions that, you know the social psychologists like karen stenner would call uh, authoritarianism which is about wanting order rather than disorder and status quo conservatism, which is really about wanting the the present to be like the past, so, and and those are yeah up to fifty percent heritable according to to Stenner and and others. So so these are deeply rooted and connected to the personality dispositions and and heritable, and therefore what that means is you can't simply school people or, or educate people out of these dispositions, and, and if you try and do that, you'll get a, a backlash actually. So you have to to some extent work with the grain of these dispositions. Of course, another part of the population is very much into openness and 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 change, but that's and they're fine. So they're going to yeah. My ex-girlfriend uh, <laughs> always wanted me to go places and I was like <laughs> I'm I'm somewhere. You can you right. can't do this. It's right. I I live here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so hard to change. Yeah, yeah, it is hard to change, but it's also about, you know, it's not just that people have these different dispositions. It then the the added polarization comes about when one side says you are morally deficient deplorable you know, deplorable you know you you want to go on holiday the same place every year so you are a xenophobe right uh, let's just say that that was the argument yeah. um and then the person says i'm not a xenophobe i just like to go to on holiday to the same place every year instead of a different place every year um so we're in that position where it's not just different responses to change but it's it's now a moralizing of this and so people are put into the good versus bad moral box and the people who've been othered as kind of morally bad are reacting against that so now in the trump vote what you saw was that opposition to political correctness next to wanting less immigration opposition to political correctness was number two predictor for voting for trump in the republican primaries so that's a major force now in wow. politics in America is is this political correctness. Is and Jordan Peterson rides that trend. Absolutely. So obviously the closer you get to the universities, the greater the power of political correctness. And so Peterson and, and Canada, where I'm from, incidentally, is probably the, the epicenter of global political correctness, more so than Sweden now, I would say. Uh, and so there he's coming out of the epicenter, Toronto, which is like the, the number one, maybe you know Boston or some of these New England places would be similar but so he's reacting against that really stifling climate um and having a lot of success with that yeah um and and I think part of my book is also about this how we got to this place on political correctness and 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 the overreach of of the cultural left in the cultural left has done a lot of good things so I don't want to say this is negative entirely but I think they've gone too far now how did we get there 
Well, if you want to talk about the ideological developments, that's a long-term Longer than people think. So, you know, these ideas of the cultural left go back to the 19th century, but certainly early 20th century. But they were small groups of bohemian intellectuals. Gramsci? Prison notebooks? One and two? I know my my Gramsci, but probably secondhand. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. uh, But no, I'm thinking more of the origins of multicultural thinking in like people like Randolph Bourne. And um, yeah, so this is kind of. 1910s America and where there was a lot of immigration from Europe and these new ideas of, of uh, cosmopolitan society were emerging um, and also this idea of rebelling against your own tribe, your own group emerges. This idea of being against – you know, Randolph Bourne, he's a, a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant American and he's saying we – our group is <coughs> uninteresting and here we are. We've just banned alcohol, which they did and – um, we ha- we don't like to dance, you know. <laughs> mm. And these ethnic minority groups are so much more interesting and express- expressive. And the blacks have their jazz, and we should we should be cosmopolitan individualists, and they must preserve their culture. That was his model, and that's essentially the way I think a lot of multicultural left thinks today. Um, and there's a contradiction because you know some white anglo-saxon protestants will want to preserve their culture and some ethnic minorities will want to be cosmopolitan individualists but they're forced into a box each side is supposed to f- take their assigned position um, and this is now causing all kinds of problems i think but isn't kind of the point of multiculturalism that we can all choose our boxes no no it's not that's not really i mean obviously multiculturalism is a very sort of uh movable feast and it could mean anything to anybody but basically the meaning is that um it kind of means that ethnic majorities should sort of get out of their culture and and embrace diversity so it means different things if you're a majority or minority if if you're a majority it means embrace you know reject your culture and embrace diversity and and the exotic and the foreign. If you're a minority, it means actually you need to treasure your own culture and be conservative and and communitarian-minded. So it's actually, I think, got a contradiction in it. And and I think the the problem now is that with populism, for example, that is the reaction of ethnic majorities who want to preserve their culture being told they are awful races for doing and being told you must celebrate diversity, not your own culture. And they're responding to that, reacting to that. So I I think that there's a big problem. What you need is actually something where every group's treated equally and where you have an acceptance between some who want to preserve and some who want to kind of explore and be different. This is kind of what France tries to do, right? You think? Uh, In in what sense? Uh, They're very concerned about... Uh, individuals, uh, they don't want religion anywhere near schools or government, anything, and they, they don't want to look at the color. You saw the the, the big controversy when uh, the Daily Show, the host of the Daily Show, uh, said that oh, the uh, the French team they're African. Oh, okay, yes, right. And right. the Fr- uh, French were like, ah, this right, is racism. Right, right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is that there's the official discourse level, which is about what you said, the Republican model, um, where you know, it doesn't matter what your religion or race is and everyone's French. And However, 
as Charles de Gaulle said, you know, we it's very good that we have you from Senegal. He was saying this in the 50s, uh, and you can be French. But of course, if there were too many, then France would not be France, right? So, and I think that's kind of getting at this issue of that even though, yes, officially there is this ideology of, of laicite and republicanism, actually – there is also an ethnic majority in, in in France, even if it has regional versions like, you know, Breton and Occitan, whatever. But there is an ethnic majority there, and as long as that majority remains a majority, they can kind of all indulge this kind of view of universalism. But once the ethnic composition and the religious composition starts to change. It's very. It's becoming very clear that it's not just about the principles of 1789. It's. It's. There are also concerns over the, the ethnic cultural makeup of France, and that's what Front National actually is. Well, that's what's driving their vote. It's not just about defense of principles of liberty. Uh, I think that's not. That's that may be what they claim that it's about. But if you look at survey evidence, the correlates of voting for populist right are not that. So what you're basically saying is that when we see Brexit, we see Trump, we see these populist movements in Europe, alternative yeah. for Deutschland, the Swedish Democrats, the ideology, the cultural underpinnings have been there all all the time. But something is happening now that bring, brings this forward and, and make it possible for people to tap into this anger? Well, okay, there have been, yeah. I, so one of the things that we know from the research is that if you tell people, um, like Americans, you say U.S. will lose its white majority in the 2040s, which is approximately correct, or you say immigration has increased uh, recently. You know, Both of those statements, when people hear that, they, be, they become more conservative and more uh, defensive in a way. Um, and so in the case of Europe, for example, the rise in immigration post-2013 up to the peak in 2015. So it's even though the migrant crisis peak was 2015, the increases already began in 2013. And so as those – as the migrant numbers move from – in 10 West European countries from roughly 1 million per year entering to 2 million a year at the height of the crisis, um, you actually see immigration in the Eurobarometer – Surveys that are done by the European Union, immigration rises as a concern, and it, and it becomes more and more people are saying this is my most important issue or my second most important issue facing the country, and as that happens, that that is what creates the conditions for the rise of the populist right. So, in in nine out of ten, there was a study. Nine out of ten West European countries between. 2005 and 2016, as you have a rise in migration, you get a rise in concern about immigration and then rising populist right support. Um, and then post-2015, there's been a bit of a dip. But um, this yeah. is uh, – but the personality traits right. kind of – they're there. Yes. The, the, people yes. low in uh, openness to experience? Right. Yes. So, so the personality traits are constant over time and that is – but – what happens is as the migration rises, that interacts with the personality traits. So people who are high in openness don't respond to the high rising immigration. And we know that, for example, if you ask a question about do you want immigration to stay the same, increase or reduce, um, the average answer to that question doesn't change with the migrant crisis. 
you know, so the the share of Swedes, the share, less so Sweden, but the share of most European countries who say reduce migration does not increase even with the migrant crisis. However, because your view on whether there should be more immigrants in the country is heavily tied to some of these dispositions around openness and authoritarianism and conservatism. Um, so they're more constant over time. What changes though is you already say I want less immigration to France or Norway. Um, but how important is immigration as an issue to you compared to the economy and healthcare? Oh, it's number five prior to 2013. But in 2015, it's number one. So it's not that attitudes have shifted. It's just that the priorities have gone up amongst the conservative population. So it's the conservative population that's responding to the immigration, not the liberal population. So what you're actually saying is that the populist parties, they need the immigration. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I don't think you could have the kind of support base for populism without – high levels of immigration. If, if immigration was low, th- these parties would all be struggling. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, you, so you have, but you also have a, a, you know, you have the issue of the percentage levels. So there's levels and changes. Changes is increase in immigration over a short space, span of time. That has the biggest effect on populist right support. But then you also have this idea of what is the, sh- the share of foreign born, the share of Muslims in the country at any one time. If that's gently rising over time, that will that will provide some some conditions for populist right support. So, but it's not as powerful as when there's a rapid increase. So levels matter, but also changes matter. Um, you can see in the U.S. case that it was more a story, I think, of levels than changes. So in the American case, the level of foreign born had been rising gradually. Um, and the politicians in the Republican Party were trying to avoid dealing with the immigration issue and it burst up from below through grassroots movements like the Tea Party. And then one candidate comes in and lights the match, Donald Trump, the only one out of the 17 primary candidates that was willing to cross the line, break the taboo in a way, uh, and and campaign openly on immigration. And so he was able to realize the benefit of this new market, if you like. Why have this been a taboo in American politics? Well, Is it's, it since Barry Goldwater? Or? No, it's, for, it's, it's part of the same development of the cultural left, which I, which I talked about earlier, which is this definition of racism expands. It's what the, Nick Haslam, a social psychologist, calls concept creep. We've seen it with other terms like bullying and trauma and prejudice that the meaning of these terms has expanded to encompass things which we wouldn't have considered bullying or trauma. Uh, similarly with racism, so that that then Im- expands to encompass being concerned about the rate of ethnic change or, or wanting to reduce immigration becomes defined as kind of smelling of racism. And so it kind of becomes captured under that umbrella of racism. As the definition of racism is expanding post-1960s, what that means is then the mainstream parties are not able to address that issue for fear of being accused of being racist in the media and by other politicians. So they respect that taboo. And I think in Sweden and Germany, you could see a very similar development where the mainstream parties didn't want to go there. And so they couldn't deal with even in 2014 as late as 2013 14 in Sweden 
Um, they didn't want to talk about numbers and so the only people who would talk about numbers were the Sweden Democrats. Similarly, in the US case, uh, the Republican National Committee, the establishment of the, of the Republican Party was committed to universalism, either neoconservatism, foreign policy hawkishness or economic individualism or, or even the religious right. All of those three were pro-immigration actually. Um, no one really was voicing the concerns of this rising uh, movement of the, of the grassroots that were disquieted by uh, illegal – not just illegal immigration, generally the immigration question. And so that gave an opportunity to someone who was willing to sort of defy the establishment and that was Trump. Do you um, think you know, Trump did – did he know this? Did he plan this or, or did he just stumbled – Upon this. Oh, no. I mean, it's uh, sort of there was polling. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, who he's working with, uh, you know, they, they were aware that this was an issue. And you can see in the, in the sort of when people, Americans were asked, what's your most important issue? You can see that starting in about 2014, the proportion of Republicans saying this was their most important issue rises to a kind of, you know, 10 to 15 percent, which is which is unprecedentedly high amongst Republicans at the time. And they could they knew that there was opportunity to be had by tapping into this discontent. So well, I, I think they already knew it. And and so I don't think it was an accident that he stumbled into this. But Kellyanne Conway, she's still married to George Conway the third? Uh, okay, I don't know. You I, I don't Because know. he is like he's criticizing Trump really hard. So Trump called him the husband from hell. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know uh, these these juicy details. Yeah, it's really it's a juicy detail. But we will do the <laughs> gossip on Trump in <laughs> okay. another podcast. Okay. Um, so, uh, so they knew this was an uh, opportunity. Why didn't any other Republican candidates go this way? Because, and I actually think these other Republican candidates were abiding by this taboo, which. Even in the right, even in the right wing media, even on Fox News, they were abiding by this taboo that they wanted to be seen as respectable. You know, I mean, the neoconservatives, they said, no, we're not about um, ethnicity and, and, and immigration. We're only about values and universalism. And so they wanted to be seen as respectable. So they abided by these anti-racist taboos, again, with the, the meaning of racism expanded beyond what I would consider to be its ordinary definition. Um, and so, yeah, they were playing ball with those taboos, which actually came from the progressive source. Uh, and so all the parties were willing to abide by this. And that is why, again, it's like when the mainstream outlets aren't willing to sell liquor, then a black marketeer pops up. And that's exactly what happens. Trump is the black marketeer. By the way, Trump had been uh, pro-immigration in the past. He changed his views. I mean, his views flip-flopped all over the place. So I don't think he's a true believer, but he knew and saw the potential in this um, in this issue. That's kind of uh, doesn't <laughs> make a lot of sense to me, but at the same time, it's uh, it's dark. Uh, but uh, do you think the same factors? Uh, contributed to Brexit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at Brexit voters, um, you know, forty percent of them said immigration was the number one issue facing Britain at the time of the vote. Um, so, I mean, that's absolutely massive. Uh, whereas only about a couple of percent of Remain voters said that it was the most important issue. I mean, that was the single biggest difference. 
Um, it was so again when it was also immigration attitudes. Roughly ninety percent of Leave voters think immigration should be reduced. It's only about forty percent of Remain voters. So it's again a massive difference. It's it's as big a difference as um, white American rep- Trump voters versus Clinton voters. It's also about fifty points gap on that. So yeah, similar dynamics. I mean, really, the right wing populism is is almost entirely, in my view, um, a, a about immigration and, and cultural change. Um, and even if people can't express it that way, so certainly the economic side, this idea that the losers of globalization who aren't doing well economically voted to leave, there's some support for that, but it's a very small support, you know, effect uh, compared to even your views on the death penalty in Britain. That's much more important for predicting how you voted in the referendum than your class, your income, whether you've lost your job, and any of those things um, matter very little. So psychological factors beats economic factors. Yes, absolutely. Every day. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is for the populist right. Now, populist left is different. That is economic. Uh, but populist right is much more uh, about these issues. Well, but why? Uh, is this, uh, you say it's about immigration or is it more about group identity? Could, uh, do you need like foreign immigrants or could this kind of outgroup be other Europeans or could it be like in Norway earlier we had uh, these people from the north, the north of Norway. They were considered like rude and, <laughs> and fighting with knives and, you know back in the 50s right, right so people when they were renting out apartments they were like no people from the north um so what's your your take on that well yeah it's both cultural distance and numbers right so it there is some going to be some resentment of of any new group uh even if they're culturally reasonably similar but it's going to be a lot more more sort of intense, I suppose, if if the group is sort of seen as quite different and and changing the character of of the culture. Whereas if they essentially melt in very quickly, then there will be much less of an issue. So so for example, it's true that you know nowadays no one would ever suggest that Catholic or Jewish white Americans are going to be uh, arousing sort of an anti-immigration sentiment, right? And so so there is a a sense in which if immigrants come in and they assimilate and become established intermarry into the majority population then there will be less animus against them over time so west europeans in britain uh, are not people aren't worried about west european immigrants in britain um it's it's they're a little they are worried about east europeans although less so than they were i would suggest and they're more more worried about non-europeans so there is a sort of uh, Scale depending on how close they are to that host society. When you and now a lot of people will say it's all about skill of immigrants, and if they were skilled, no one would care, which I don't think is true. And actually, I've done some some studies where if you say okay, you can have more immigration, but it'll be higher skill, less immigration, lower skill, then people are about split about fifty fifty. But when you actually point out, well, higher skill, high immigration, but your the ethnic composition of the country will shift faster, then all of a sudden people really opt in a big way for the lower lower immigration, even if it means lower skill. So I think there's a a very strong degree to which this is ethnocultural. I mean, another good question in Britain is, 
um, how, how much are you worried about pressure on public services? Zero, to, not worried at all. A hundred, very worried. You get about a 50 out of a hundred. Um, all you have to do is drop in two words, immigrants putting. Immigrants putting pressure on public services. So if you ask that question, how worried are you about that to leave voters, it's about 70 out of 100. But logically, of course, the, um, the part of the problem of pressure on public services caused by immigrants must be smaller than the problem of pressure on public services. So it doesn't make any sense that they're rating pressure on public services 48 or 49 out of 100 and immigrants putting pressure as 70. But it just shows you that the reason why they're worried about immigration is not pressure on public services. It's just that that's a rationale they can fit that concern into. Um, it's a bit like so the, Jonathan Haidt with his elephant and the rider, right? So the the elephant is really this more ethnocultural concern about change uh, and and loss, but the rider, which is telling the story, uh, is is telling a story about public services or immigrant crime or something, which which is the way it's verbalized. But I don't think that's the motive. No, I really enjoyed this uh, <laughs> two thousand and one article. The uh, rational tail and the, the the emotional dog and its rational tail. Right. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. That's the same concept as the elephant and the rider. Yeah, yeah. it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That, that we really we feel something and and we, we we then we make a story around that. Right. That's yeah. Just the same as Sitchek says. Well, Sitchek <laughs> he probably say, he probably says everything. I don't know. Yeah, he does. <laughs> That's why we like him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should revisit him. I, I maybe I'm doing him down. <laughs> no, no, it's just uh, you can all, always cite him. You know, right? <laughs> if you don't, oh, I don't remember who said it. CJ yeah, probably yeah, okay, said it. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> just like Wittgenstein, he changed one and two. You know, uh-huh. so he said a, said a everything on both sides. Okay, yeah, right, right. They, they are really handy <laughs> when you're turning in the term paper. <laughs> <laughs> Or is it like you fail students when they cite the uh, C-check? Like, uh, no, oh, no, this, no, no, no. This doesn't hold up. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's not like citing Wikipedia, but it's close. No. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the Wikipedia of uh, academia. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he, he has a position at your university. Yeah, yeah, no, he does. Absolutely. I, I don't begrudge him. I mean, he has, obviously, he's, he's, he's good at what he does, and I don't want to... Um, knock him too much. I mean, it's just that I, I sort of like this more uh, systematic kind of, you know, scientific hypothesis testing. And, and uh, I'm not against big ideas, but I think they should ultimately be measurable and testable. Yeah. But um, we uh, let's go back to the stories we tell, the stories we invent. And uh, to to be uh, skeptical of immigrants, there has to be a narrative, right? Mm. Of, of uh, uh, what should I say? That people are afraid of the immigrants, that they're skeptical. What right. constitutes such a narrative? Yeah, so you obviously there are some people who are afraid, and and you know I think that's that's deplorable in many ways. I mean, <laughs> uh, but I think that a lot of this is a narrative around uh, who is us and who is who is not us, right? So so for example, the definition of of the in group is typically around ancestry and culture. Um, you know, and, and then the so the question then becomes, and also this idea of, you know, who has a, a prior claim to to be the majority, to be in the territory, and and I think that's fair enough that there is something that one can question about that. But 
Um, so there is a narrative of identity links to the past, past generations um, and certain cultural markers, whether that be religion or language or skin color or whatever that, that are associated with being a member of the majority. Now, I'm, I'm kind of arguing that some of these markers can change over time. So I think the skin color one can change, uh, will change over time to become more fluid. But, um, uh, you know, so that is a narrative. But I also think that some of these, to some extent, these things are 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 not, even if they are constru- socially constructed, which they are, that doesn't mean you can easily just re- re- reconstruct them. They're not super flexible. It's like saying the primary colors, instead of talking about, we know that that's just a, a spectrum, an electromagnetic continuous spectrum, and, and we impose these colors on that spectrum. Uh, so tomorrow we're going to have a whole new set of colors which we're going to work with and we're going to deconstruct the ones we've got. Uh, that's going to be almost impossible, right? So I think it's very difficult just because something is a constructed narrative. Uh, it has a real, a social reality to it and you could, it has some flexibility but not total flexibility. If you should try to write the new narrative, uh, right? Okay. What so, could that be? Well, I, I'm sort of a proponent of this liberal ethnicity where the ethnic majority, there's, to my view, there's nothing wrong with being attached to being a member of a, a majority ethnic group. Uh, I would urge that to be moderate and, you know, open to mixing, for example, open to assimilation of, uh, people who want to join that group. So it's a sort of different conception from saying, no, you, you must be 100% white and, and, and that's the only way you can be a member, which I would say is a more exclusive definition. And, and that, that, to my mind, would be the wrong, wrong way to go. Um, but if you have a kind of open uh, majority group, um, you can be proud of the group, its ancestry, traditions, whatever. Not everyone has to be a member. You can be a minority. That's fine. There's no problem and equal. Um, but if you want to attach to being a major, a member of a majority group, then that shouldn't be stigmatized unless you then uh, – what should be stigmatized is saying bad things about outgroups or saying you're superior to outgroups or they are – you know, rapists or terrorists, you know, that should be stigmatized. But just saying I'm attached to being ethnic Norwegian, you know, that's, that I think is, is perfectly fine. I mean, conservative people will want to do that and they should, should be allowed to do that. Um, but I do think they should be open to things like interracial marriage and, um, to melt, you know, this idea of a more f- sort of, um, melt, you know, uh, what would I, I suppose more flexible definition of the cultural markers, particularly around race. Uh, which will allow this group then to adapt and to maintain itself. Uh, yes, it will become more beige and more kind of mixed race in, in color, but it would still maintain the consciousness and collective memories. Uh, and then that also gives the ethnic majority a future. Whereas if you just say the past was, was white and monocultural, the future will be multicultural and by the way, if you are a member of the majority, you should reject your your heritage and and, and look towards this. Uh, to, you should celebrate diversity, and and you are the bad old past, and you want to look to the the beautiful uh, rainbow future. I mean, I think that message is kind of a very negative one for uh, conservative members of majorities who 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 want to continue their tradition. So I kind of I think you need to have um, <clears throat> space for conservative members of majorities to. Um, 
you know, want their traditions to continue and to see a future for those. But also you have to have space for cosmopolitans. I don't, you know, I would hate to see them disappear. You want to have space for people who want uh, novelty and diversity and who love multiculturalism. You know, they, they should be allowed to see, they can think of, the, of, of Norway as this multicultural place that's always changing and the conservatives can think of Norway as this place that's timeless and uh, links back to their traditions. Um, as long as each one respects the fact that there's no single way to be Norwegian, you know, there are multiple ways and, and the politicians should acknowledge these multiple ways. Whereas I sense in the, the problem I sense is many Western politicians have, have only ever endorsed the diversity and change version of, of the nation. They don't, they kind of associate the timeless tradition version of the nation as being kind of xenophobic and something they want to get past. I, I think that's wrong. I think actually you need to have space for that other version to exist. Yeah, Norwegian politicians on the right have been quite good at like trying to identify Norwegian culture. Right. Uh, like what what is it that makes <laughs> us Norwegian? Uh, and they tried like waffles or have you tasted it? Waffles? No. Uh, well, no, I didn't know that was Norwegian. Uh, and goat cheese? Brown goat cheese? Okay. No, I haven't. No, you haven't? No. <laughs> um, well, that's what it, I like. I, I would think that Norwegian values were like freedom and maybe liberty, equality, stuff like that. But they didn't like that. They wanted waffles <laughs> right. uh, and fjords, of course. Right, right. Uh, and that's like uh, it, it's kind of hard to to for me to see how that's Norwegian, you know. Uh, but but. What is Norwegian values? What is Western values? Is there Western values? Well, there are these Western values, but I'm not – okay, so you, you, they're the same in every country, by the way. <laughs> it's a liberty, equality, enterprise, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, it's great to have those and and yes, they are – I guess you could say they're Western values. They're really kind of liberal values. Um, but I think that's not – you can't define a particular like a nation with reference just to universals. I mean – Except if you define yourself as we are first amongst equals, we're the champions of liberty in the world, which is kind of the neoconservative American. Yeah, the US used to be that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that universalistic missionary nationalism is, is, that's one type of nationalism. Uh, But I think it's, I'm more of a proponent of uh, the the more particularistic. So I don't think you can define it in terms of a hymn sheet of values, it's got to be, I think, a menu where, yes, you have those values that people adhere to, but that's not really what defines it. It's it's things like landscape. It, it'll depend. So for, say, a rural or, or ethnic majority conservative Norwegian, it will be hist- Norwegian history and the landscape. And it'll also be, by the way, many generations' ancestry connected to the land for them. Uh, I don't see any problem with that as long as they're not saying we are more Norwegian than someone who's uh, you know from Kurdish or Somali ancestry. Um, somebody who is say living in Oslo and who's an immigrant background might identify with you know a pro- prosperity and good healthcare and and perhaps uh, the weather. And, I, I don't know certain institutions perhaps of Norway might be more important for their definition of being Norwegian and that's also fine. I don't think you keep this idea of forcing everybody to love uh, goat's cheese. You know, I don't think that's going to be the way forward. I think you have to allow people to come to it in their own way. Uh, but but what that also means is you you are allowing this, you know, more sort of uh, timeless, continuous uh, 
conception of the nation to exist for some people. Uh, we know from there was a survey done in Britain on Englishness where uh, members of the white majority were more likely to identify with the English green and pleasant land, you know, and and British history as important to their Englishness, uh, whereas the, uh, you know, ethnic minorities were less likely to do that. They were maybe more attached to the diversity of people in, in, in Britain. Uh, and that's okay. I, I think that's fine. I don't think there should be, we should be saying, the, you know, it's better to be attached to the diversity story than to the history and landscape story. I think you can, and, and, and you shouldn't be forcing people into one box. That's kind of... Yeah, a lot of people in Norway are really interested in history, and um, I was thinking about this: if if the if the weather had been better when the <laughs> William the Conqueror was going to Britain, he would have come before the Norwegians that went to the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Uh, so then. It could have been like the Viking Harald uh, Horoda that took <laughs> okay. over England. Uh, and then everybody would have uh, spoke uh, Norwegian instead. Could be, right? Yeah. I mean, Ireland could have been uh, Viking as well, or Norwegian as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <it laughs> Except, could. of course, what's interesting about the – this is the, the Vikings are a good example of what I talk about, of assimilation, where they melted in and disappeared in a way. Uh, in these different cultures that they conquered – and so, in a way, they were the good immigrants. <laughs> we didn't disappear, you know. So, what uh, it's for me? I know that we have the same genes as the Vikings, right? But still, it feels very alien to us here in Norway, where we sit with our coffee, <laughs> right? Uh, but still, you say that biology drives a lot of our the diversity in thinking. How how is the link, and how how does the society play out different biological features of man? Well, yeah. So I don't think biology is driving uh, this this argument that it's biological tribalism that's driving it all. I mean, I think that's that's there, but of course, different cultural it's culture. I think which is central. So um, different inherited cultural forms will. Uh, press different biological buttons. So I think the biology is, I think is, of it as being somewhat passive, that it's about these different cultural memes which plug into different biological drives and, and manipulate them. Uh, so I still think what matters more are the, are the, are these cultural ideas that are inherited over generations, uh, and sh- gradually change. Um, I'm not a biological determinist, but I, what, what I would say is where it does matter is through things like personality and authoritarianism and conservatism. That those dispositions initially start out as a kind of a genetic difference, um, which is then, as Robert Plowman, who I think you had on, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. people then select their environments. So then people with that disposition might choose different experiences, different newspapers, different politicians, which reinforce them and move them in a different direction. Yeah, that. People yeah. that's have said the same thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dawkins, the selfish gene. Right. I, I remember you mentioned meme. Yes. So uh, he he argues that memes, in kind of the same way, it's they travel on their own. They grow when they it's when they get nurtured. Um, uh, what kind of memes? It's memes you're talking about, right? Yes, yeah. So, so the two memes, if you think about it, are one is this majority ethnicity, and the other is this 
well, there's majority ethnicity, and then there's also which is a set of myths and symbols which are transmitted both over time through families, but also through certain institutions. And then you have uh, an understanding of, of Norwegian national identity, the territory and political identity, which entails a certain hit, traditional ethnic composition, which is majority ethnic Norwegian with some minorities. That's also a, a meme, right, which is reproduced over time. And but then you have this cultural left meme, which is something that is, again, uh, produced over time. If you hit like mass media, you know, television and the university sector is a positive environment. It expands. It's colliding with the majority ethnicity meme and the uh, ethno-traditional national identity meme and they're battling it out right now. And and so this is where – so I'm not sure. I mean biology matters a little bit but this is largely about a cultural clash between these memes. Who will win? What meme is the strongest? Um, well, I think the strongest in the high culture is definitely the this um, cultural left meme in, in the in the universities and cultural institutions. Um, is Me Too such a meme? Yes. So Me Too. Well, Me Too would be part of that thrust of the race, sex, gender, religion in a way, if I can put it that way, about weakening the strong race, sex, genders and strengthening the weak race, sex, genders. Uh, so that is that. That's kind of the dominant ideology, which is still rising, I think, in in universities and in in the culture, uh, but then you have against this this um, ethno and national meme, which <clears throat> I think is is largely outside the established uh, cultural institutions. Is being expressed more through politics, through po- populist right parties, through the you know the the, the right co- conservative media. That's the force that's carrying that. Meme. So where do these two things clash? I guess populism, if you think about it, going after the cultural elite. The cultural elite is where the meme of the cultural left is exerting force and, and it has influence in the liberal institutions like the judiciary, for example, um, the judges. Uh, and then you have the populism which is expressing that ethnocultural meme uh, through politics. And, and, and where are they clashing? Maybe the media is one place – Political party, you know, political competition is another uh, where we're seeing this clash. I'm so looking forward to see how this war of the memes going <laughs> right, to go right. how it will turn out. In Norway, we we have it. I feel that in Canada, you're like twenty, thirty years ahead of us. You're right. I'm not sure, but anyway, <laughs> uh, with political uh, correctness, political oh, correct, yes. uh, correctness haven't hit Norway yet. We're okay. waiting, waiting for it. No? Right. <laughs> I understand it's not as strong here in the in the university sector. It's no, no, it's not. You can still. We had Charles Murray here. No, oh, right. Okay. Nobody okay. reacted. <laughs> right. Um, so um, yeah, I think we're safe for a year or something. Right. Right. But in Canada, you're kind of past political correctness. And the left-wing cultural academia, they kind of won the meme war. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think that's right. And and so they're – I mean they have a political vehicle now. So in the liberal – Justin Trudeau's liberal party is is the political vehicle for that or provincially – Ontario is very meme friendly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, so so that's happening there. I would say that the kind of resistance to that is also kind of uh, rising in Canada now. So we have a populist right party won in the Quebec election. There's now a populist right party federally called the People's Party. And 
even in, in the province of Ontario, which is the largest province, a, a populist conservative government, one, one of their promises was, you know, free speech at universities and getting rid of gender quote, you know, so there is a sort of, I think Canada is, and in the U.S. too, I think that the cultural left is becoming more influential in the Democratic Party. So that in a way, it's polarizing that, that, that the Republican Party are moving one way, anti-political correctness, the Democrats are moving the other way. And similarly in Canada, I think Canada is becoming polarized slowly and surely just like the U.S. is. Uh, so I don't – I'm not sure that's being ahead in any way. It's not clear to me that that this will necessarily happen in Norway. I don't – you know, you can see the the rise of the influence of the cultural left in universities over time through surveys in the U.S. It's been very steady. Similarly in Britain, um, I can see some young staff members who are of this ideolo- ideology. Yeah, it's still a minority, but you know, all it takes is a a critical mass of them, and then if everybody else is say passive because maybe they are afraid of those people or they have some sympathies because they are center left they're 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 still you I mean they're intellectually curious people and they're moderate but they don't necessarily want to be seen as conservatives so all it takes is a is that middle group to to sort of bend to the wishes of the kind of radicals it's all driven by these radicals and then your institution is is done for or at least so it's department by department tends to go, um, and then the institution can go right. Uh, so what department would fall first? Well, I think it would be tend to be the softer end of the social sciences, humanities, like anthropology, sociology, um, um, linguistics. Uh, let me just think, maybe English or or languages. Um, if you have. So in the humanities, history would usually be slightly more resistant to this than languages and um, arche- you know something that's very practical like archaeology might be even more resistant. And in the in the social sciences, it would be the more quantitative oriented social sciences that would be more resistant. Yeah, economics. Right. Right. Yeah, it will never. <laughs> Demography. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Mm. It's um, it has been so great to have you here. It's really interesting to listen to you. I just listen and forget to ask questions because I'm so curious about what you have to say and I'm r- so curious about the future. How how will this uh, turn out? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, me too. Uh, so you just came out with a book, uh, White Shift. Uh, recommend everybody to read it. It's not too difficult to read. So still our listeners that like to uh, we keep it uh, low-key, you will still like it, I think. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Eric, for visiting us. Thanks, Anders. It's great to be here and my first time in Oslo, so I'm enjoying it a lot. And I hope you will come back one day. I hope so, too. Thanks. Thanks.